Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a message called The Law Written on the Heart. It was delivered on the Lord's Day morning, October 29, 1882, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle of Newington. The verse, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three: After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. Last Lord's Day morning, says Charles Spurgeon, we spoke of the first great blessing of the covenant of grace, namely, the full forgiveness of sins. Then we dilated with delight upon that wonderful promise, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. I hope our consciences were pacified and our hearts filled with wonder as we thought of God's casting behind his back all the sins of his people, so that we could sing with David, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. This great blessing, oh, and he goes on to say, And forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. This great blessing of pardon sin is always connected with the renewal of the heart. It is not given because of the change of heart, but it is always given with the change of heart. If God takes away the guilt of sin, he is sure at the same time to remove the power of sin. If he puts away our offenses against his law, he also makes us desire in future to obey the law. In our text, we observe the excellence and dignity of the law of God. The gospel has not come into the world to set aside the law, Salvation by grace does not erase a single precept of the law, nor lower the standard of justice in the smallest degree. No, on the contrary, as Paul says, we do not make void the law through faith, we establish the law. The law is never honored by fallen man until he comes from under its condemning rule and walks by faith and lives under the covenant of grace. When we were under the covenant of works, we dishonored the law. But now we venerate it as a perfect display of moral rectitude. Our Lord Jesus has shown to an assembled universe that the law is not to be trifled with and that every transgression and disobedience must receive a just recompense of reward. Since the sin which he bore on our account brought upon him as our innocent substitute the doom of suffering and death. Our Lord Jesus has testified by his death that even if sin be pardoned, yet it is not put away without an expiatory sacrifice. The death of Christ rendered more honor to the law than all the obedience of all who were ever under it could have rendered and it was a more forcible vindication of eternal justice than if all the redeemed had been cast into hell. When the Holy One smites his own son, his wrath against sin is evidence to all. But this is not enough. The law is in the gospel, not only vindicated by the sacrifice of Christ, but it is honored by the work of the Spirit of God upon the hearts of men. Whereas under the old covenant, the commands of the law excited our evil natures to rebellion. Under the covenant of grace, we consent to the law that it is good. 
and our prayer is, Teach me to do thy will, O Lord. What the law could not do because of the weakness of the flesh, the gospel has done through the Spirit of God. Thus the law is had in honor among believers, and though they are no more under it as a covenant of works, they are in a measure conformed to it as they see it in the life of Christ Jesus, and they delight in it after the inward man. Things required by the law are bestowed by the gospel. God demands obedience under the law. God works obedience under the gospel. Holiness is asked of us by the law. Holiness is wrought in us by the gospel. So that the difference between the economies of law and gospel is not to be found in any diminution of the demands of the law, but in the actual giving unto the redeemed that which the law exacted of them, and in the working in them that which the law required. Notice, beloved friends, that under the old covenant, the law of God was given in a most awe-inspiring manner, and yet it did not secure loyal obedience. God came to Sinai, and the mountain was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. So terrible was the sight of God manifesting himself on Sinai, that even Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Out of the thick darkness, which covered the sublime summit, there came forth the sound of a trumpet, waxing exceeding loud and long, and a voice proclaimed one by one the ten great statutes and ordinances of the moral law. I think I see the people at a distance, with bounds set about the mount, crouching with abject fear, and at last entreating that these words might not be spoken to them any more. So terrible was the sound of Jehovah's voice, even when he was not declaring vengeance, but simply expounding righteousness, that the people could not endure it any longer. And yet, no permanent impression was left upon their minds. No obedience was shown in their lives. Men may be cowed by power, but they can only be converted by love. The sword of justice hath less power over human hearts than the scepter of mercy. Further to preserve that law, God himself inscribed it upon two tables of stone, and he gave these tablets into the hands of Moses. What a treasure! Surely no particles of matter had hitherto been so honored as these slabs, which had been touched by the finger of God and bore on them the legible impress of his mind. But these laws on stone were not kept. Neither the stones nor the laws were reverenced. Moses had not long gone up into the mount before the once awesome, awestruck people were bowing before the golden calf, forgetful of Sinai and its solemn voice, and making to themselves the likeness of an ox that eateth grass, and bowing before it as the symbol of the Godhead. When Moses came down from the hill with those priceless tablets in his hands, he saw the people wholly given up to base idolatry, and in his indignation he dashed the tablets to the ground, broke them in pieces, as well he might, when he saw how the people had spiritually broken them, 
and violated every word of the Most High, from all which I gather that the law is never really obeyed as the result of servile fear. Oh, you may preach up the anger of God and the terrors of the world to come, but these do not melt the heart to loyal obedience. It is needful for other ends that man should know of God's resolve to punish sin, but the heart is not by that fact one to virtue. Man revolts yet more and more. So stubborn is he that the more he is commanded, the more he rebels. The Decalogue upon your church walls and in your daily service has its ends, but it can never be operative upon men's lives until it is also written on their hearts. Tables of stone are hard, and men count obedience to God's law to be a hard thing. The commands are judged to be stony while the heart is stony, and men harden themselves because the way of the precept is hard to their evil minds. Stones are proverbially cold, and the law seems a cold, chill thing, for which we have no love as long as the appeal is to our fears. Tablets of stone, though apparently durable, can readily enough be broken, and so can God's commands. So are they indeed broken every day by us, and those who have the clearest knowledge of the will of God nevertheless offend against him. As long as they have nothing to keep them in check but a servile dread of punishment or a selfish hope of reward, they yield no loyal homage to the statutes of the Lord. At this time I have to show you the way in which God secures to himself obedience to his law in quite another fashion, not by thundering it out from Sinai, nor by engraving it upon tablets of stone, but by coming in gentleness and infinite compassion into the hearts of men, and there, upon fleshy tables, inscribing the commands of his law in such a manner that they are joyfully obeyed, and men become the willing servants of God. This is the second great privilege of the covenant, not second in value, but in order, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. It is thus described by Ezekiel, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. In the epistle to the Hebrews, we have it in another form. We read it thus, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. This is so inestimably precious that you who know the Lord are longing for it, and it is your great delight that it is to be wrought in you by the sovereign grace of God. We shall, first of all, look at the tablets. I will put my law in their 
inward parts. Write it in their hearts. Secondly, at the writing. And thirdly, at the writer. Fourthly, at the results which come of this wondrous thing. Oh, that the Spirit who has promised to lead us unto all truth may illuminate us now. First, I invite your attention to the tablets upon which God writes his law. I will put my law in their inward parts. And just as once he put the two tables into the ark of gopher wood, so he will put his holy law into our inward nature and enclose it in our thoughts and minds and memories and affections as a jewel in a casket. And then he adds, and I will write it in their hearts. Just as the holy words were engraven upon stone, so shall they now be written in the heart, in the handwriting of the Lord himself. Mark that the law is written not on the heart, but in the heart, in the very texture and constitution of it, so that into the center and core of the soul, obedience shall be infused as a vital principle. Thus you see the Lord has selected for his tablets that which is the seat of life. It is in the heart that life is to be found. A wound there is fatal. Where the seat of life is, there the seat of obedience shall be. In the heart, life has its permanent palace and perpetual abode. And God saith that instead of writing his holy law on stones, which may be left at a distance, he will write it on the heart which must always be within us. Instead of placing the law upon phylacteries which can be bound between the eyes but may easily be taken off, he will write it in the heart where it must always remain. He has bidden his people write his laws upon the posts of their doors and upon their gates, but in those conspicuous places they might become so familiar as to be unnoticed. The Lord now himself writes them where they must always be noted and always produce effect. If men have the precepts written in the abode of their life, they live with the law. They cannot live without it. It is a wonderful thing that God should do this. It displays infinitely greater wisdom than if the law had been inscribed on slabs of granite or engraven on plates of gold. What wisdom is this which operates upon the original spring of life so that all that flows forth from man shall come from a sanctified fountainhead? Observe next that not only is the heart the seat of life, but it is the governing power. It is from the heart, as from a, a royal metropolis, that the imperial commands of the man are issued by which hand and foot and eye and tongue and all the members are ordered. If the heart be right, then the other powers must yield submission to its sway and become right too. If God writes his law upon the heart, then the eye will purify its glances and the tongue will speak according to rule and the hand will move and the foot will travel as God ordains. When the heart is fully influenced by God's Spirit, then the will and the intellect, the memory and the imagination, and everything else which makes up the inward man comes under cheerful allegiance to the King of Kings. 
God himself saith, Give me thine heart. For the heart is the key of the entire position. Hence, the supreme wisdom of the Lord in setting up his law where it becomes operative upon the entire man. But before God can write upon man's heart, it must be prepared. It is most unfit to be a writing table for the Lord until it is renewed. The heart must first of all undergo erasures. What is written on the heart already, some of us know to our deep regret. Original sin has cut deep lines. Satan has scored his horrible handwriting in black letters, and our evil habits have left their impressions. How can the Lord write there? No one would expect the holy God to inscribe his holy law upon an unholy mind. The former things must be taken away, that there may be clear space upon which new and better things may be engraven. But who can erase these lines? Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. The God who can take away the spots from the leopard can also remove the evil lines which now deface the heart. As the heart must undergo erasures, it must also experience a thorough cleansing, not of the surface only, but of its entire fabric. Truly, brethren, it was far easier for Hercules to, Hercules to purge the Augean stables than for our hearts to be purged. For the sin that lies within us is not an accumulation of external defilement, but an inward, all-pervading corruption. The taint of secret and spiritual evil is in man's natural life. Every pulse of his soul is disordered by it. The eggs of all crimes are within our being. The accursed virus, from whose deadly venom every foul design will come, is present in the soul. Not only tendency to sin, but sin itself hath taken possession of the soul and blackened and polluted it through and through till there is not a fiber of the heart untinged with iniquity. God cannot write his law in our inward parts till with water and with blood he has purged us. Tables on which the Lord shall write must be clean. Therefore, the heart on which God is to engrave his law, must be a cleansed heart. And it is a great joy to perceive that from the person of our Lord, heart-cleansing blood and water flowed, so that the provision is equal to the necessity. Blessed be the name of our gracious God. He knows how to erase the evil and to cleanse the soul through his Holy Spirit's applying the work of Jesus to us. In addition to this, the heart needs to be softened. For the heart is naturally hard, and in some men it has become harder than an adamant stone. They have resisted God's love till they are impervious to it. They have stood out obstinately against God's will till they have become desperately set on mischief, and nothing can affect them. God must melt the heart and must transform it from granite into flesh. And he has the power to do it. Blessed be his name, according to the covenant of grace. He has promised to work this wonder, and he will. Nor would the softening be enough, for there are some who have a tenderness of the most deceiving kind. 
Well, they receive the word with joy. They feel every expression of it, but they speedily go their way and forget what manner of men they are. They are as impressible as the water, but the impression is as soon removed, so that another change is needed, namely, to make them retentive of that which is good. Else might you engrave and re-engrave, but like an inscription upon wax, it will be gone in a moment if exposed to heat. The devil, the world, and the temptations of life would soon erase out of the heart all that God had written there if it if he did not create it anew with the faculty of holding fast that which is good. In a word, the heart of man needs to be totally changed. Even as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Dear hearers, we preach to you that whosoever believeth in Christ hath everlasting life, and we speak neither more nor less than the truth of God when we say so. But yet, believe us, there must be as great a change in the heart as if a man were slain and made alive again. There must be a new creation, a resurrection from the dead. Old things must pass away. All things must become new. God's law can never be written upon the old natural heart. There must be a new and spiritual nature given. And then upon the center of that new life, upon the throne of that new power within our life, God will set up the proclamation of his blessed will. And what he commands shall be done. So then, you see, these tablets are not so easily written upon as perhaps at the first we thought. If God is to write the law upon the heart, the heart must be prepared. And in order to be prepared, it must be entirely renewed by a miracle of mercy, such as can only be wrought by that omnipotent hand which made both heaven and earth. I have to stop and say amen there because we've come to the end of part one and we're roughly halfway through this message. We'll do the second half next time around. Thank you so much for being present with me today. I would like to share with you now, as I have been doing every day for a while here, the, the book of the day. I, I want to go through all the various books the Lord has given me to write. And uh, this one's called Jesus First, Last, and Best. It attempts to compare Jesus Christ to the one that's called the prophet Muhammad. In so many ways, Jesus is incomparable. And yet the claim is being made by the Muslims that Muhammad is not only a prophet, but that he is the last prophet. Therefore, we should hear him. Well, that claim has to be challenged. And I trace the lives of both men through the sources available. And I arrive at conclusions based on solid historical evidence. I think it's a seriously important book for people who want to know about Islam. And is it really something that we should go after? And should we somehow team up with the Muslims and consider ourselves under the same God and so on and so on. Take a look at this book. It's a, available at Kindle for just a dollar, as all my books are. Uh, paperback is only uh, $6, and it's an 88-page book. Available at Amazon.com, or just click on the store right there. 
Uh, I think that's all I will share today. We've got a lot more to do tomorrow. I think we'll be a little bit longer tomorrow as we finish up this message of Charles Spurgeon. Thank you so much for being here. It's always good. God bless you. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. And Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.